Welcome, friends, to The Word is Resistance, a podcast of showing up for racial justice, or surge. This is the podcast where we explore the weekly Christian scripture readings with an eye toward racial justice and collective liberation. My name is Nicola Torbett. I use she and her pronouns, and I'm recording this here in what is now known as Oakland, California. This is the unceded homeland of the Ohlone people, who are still very much here and active and taking leadership in this movement town. This podcast, as many of you know, is aimed at white Christians like me who want to respond to the call to dismantle white supremacy. We recognize that as white Christians, we have our own particular work to do, that it is our responsibility to learn how to resist the forces of white Christian supremacy from which we've benefited and with which we are otherwise complicit. We are seeking to find and uproot white supremacy wherever it shows up, including in ourselves and our own Christian tradition. We are trying to defect from the systems, structures, ideologies, and habitual ways of being that uphold supremacy of all kinds. We are building up a new world. And by the way, that's also the song you are hearing throughout this podcast. This live recording of Dr. Vincent Harding's song for the freedom movement is of a multiracial movement choir practice in Denver, Colorado on December 2014, being led by Minister Daryl J. Walker. We are deeply grateful to the Freeney Harding family for letting us use this song for our podcast. So, it's Eastertide, the nerdy church word we use for these weeks following Easter, during which we try to figure out what it means to live in the wake of resurrection, which, unfortunately, in this world, means learning how to live resurrection in the midst of ongoing crucifixions. Now, I have to confess that I have struggled with Easter for years. It's hard for me to join in with the joy and celebration without it feeling a little bit tinny and insensitive. Because what about the ones who are still dying too young? What about the dead who don't come back? Who, no matter how many times we chant justice for Jalen, will never again hug their mothers? And so because I have been so grouchy about Easter, I really welcome the theme we've chosen for Eastertide here at The Word is Resistance. That theme is hashtag failure lab. Because... What I'm coming to realize is that my ideas about resurrection, what it is supposed to look and feel and be like, are deeply shaped by white supremacy's definitions of success. As much as I have tried to decolonize myself of those, they are still in there. And those definitions of success, as Sharon Fenema so beautifully talked about last week, are all shot through with perfectionism. Jesus' movement was not a success by Roman standards, and likely ours won't be either. So if it's not that, if we're not looking for triumphalism and domination and victory over, then how do we recognize resurrection or fail to? Courage, brothers, don't get weary. Courage, people, don't get weary. 
The scripture this week is another of those strange post-resurrection appearances of Jesus. In this one, we are accompanying two of the disciples, Cleopas and another who is never named, as they walk to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. We don't know why they are going there. Is it an errand? Were they planning to go there and then return to the upper room in Jerusalem where the others are hiding out? Or were they beating a retreat, leaving behind what seemed to be a failed movement? Were they intending to move on, somehow try to get over their crushed dreams of liberation and piece together whatever kind of life they could under occupation and the economic and political constraints that occupation enforced? We don't know. What we do know is that these disciples are joined on the road by a stranger who asks them what they are talking about so intensely. Of course, what they've been talking about is what happened to the prophet and teacher they had loved and followed, Jesus of Nazareth, his arrest, his joke of a trial, his brutal execution by the state. And now this confusing report from the women that his body is not in the tomb and that he may actually be alive somehow. To their surprise, the guy who approached them on the road is like, oh, yes, that. (laughs) Was it not necessary that the Messiah should suffer these things and then enter into his glory? And then this stranger goes on to explain how the Hebrew scriptures actually predicted all of this, said it would have to be this way. So when they got to where they were going, the stranger started to say goodbye, but they felt compelled to invite him to stay with them. So they did, and he agreed. And over supper, he took some bread and broke it. And suddenly, in that action, they realized who they'd been hanging out with. It was Jesus himself. And as soon as they realized it, poof, he was gone. And then they confessed to each other that they had had this funny feeling as they walked with him on the road, that their hearts had been burning, they say, in a strange way as he talked about the scripture. They should have known. And in their excitement, they got up and they went all the way back to Jerusalem and told the other disciples what had happened. So ends this story about the disciples' failure to recognize Jesus until they do. It's not the only time that happens, right? In the Gospel of John, Mary Magdalene mistakes Jesus for the gardener until he calls her by name. Later, Peter and the others are out fishing, and Jesus hails them from the shore, but they do not recognize him and wonder why this dude is giving them fishing instructions. Only when they haul in a whole miraculous boatload of fish is one of them able to place this teacher, whom they'd spent day and night with for months. They fail to recognize him. And it makes me think about all the times we fail to recognize Jesus when he shows up in our lives, in the grocery store line, on the news, at the tent encampment, in our workplaces, and on our doorsteps. Jesus doesn't always look as we'd expect. Sometimes he looks worn. Sometimes, as in the story of Thomas we talked about last week, he's wounded. He bears the scars of crucifixion. Sometimes, I would even dare say, he seems to have made a mistake. 
Sometimes maybe he even looks like a so-called criminal crucified there between two others who've been given that name. Just a few days ago, a white man in Kansas City, Missouri, failed to recognize the 16-year-old black boy on his doorstep. He thought he was a criminal trying to break into his house, and he shot him in the head, then again in the arm. Ralph Jarl, who I will say again is 16 and plays the bass clarinet in the high school marching band, was looking for his younger brothers. He was supposed to pick them up, and he had the address wrong. He was looking for them at 1100 Northeast 115th Street when they were really at 1100 Northeast 115th Terrace. He had made a mistake, or his mother had, and that mistake nearly cost this child his life because of white supremacy. Bleeding from gunshot wounds, he went to three different neighbors' houses until he found someone who agreed to call the paramedics, but had him lie on the ground with his hands above his head until they got there. All because white supremacy kept not just this one gunman, but also his neighbors from recognizing a child of God when he was bleeding out in front of them. If we're going to talk about failure, if we're going to talk about mistakes, we have to remember that for some, not for me, but for some, making a mistake, going to the wrong address, or not using a turn signal, or not noticing a burnt out brake light, can be fatal. Jalen Walker, 25 years old, in Akron, Ohio, had made a mistake. He was having a hard time in general. His fiance had died just weeks before, and family and friends say he was just not himself. He had failed to notice that that tiny light above his license plate was burned out. And when the police tried to pull him over for it, he fled instead, allegedly firing a gun at the police car as he did. He died in a hail of bullets, dozens upon dozens, fired by police officers who this week were acquitted of all charges in his death. Jalen Walker had no prior criminal record. Who failed? Jalen Walker, or the officers, or the whole system? People say, well, he fired at an officer. And it's true that doing so meant he did not have the hallmark of the perfect innocent victim that we look for in choosing the faces for the placards in marches against police terror. But there are questions here, I think, about who gets to make mistakes and what kind and what it means to love and follow a God of grace and forgiveness. And whose face can we recognize the face of God? In whose face can we recognize Jesus? And who has the luxury of making mistakes, of not recognizing the house, or the urgency of getting that tiny license plate light fixed? Don't get weary, though the way be long. That's what the song says. 
Cleopas and his friend were, I think, weary. They were distressed and disheartened on their way to Emmaus. To them, it seemed the Jesus movement had failed. I think a lot of us know how they felt. It usually feels like we are failing too. We who are trying to stem the tide of violence against those who are targeted again and again. It is not easy to understand, to preach, or even to recognize resurrection in this context. Not when the crucifixions continue unabated. White supremacy continues to kill black and brown people using police officers, border patrol agents, security guards, vigilantes, militarized borders, neighbors, and barren desert without water stations to do it. To speak of resurrection in this context seems offensive. Yes, Jesus got up, and it seems Ralph Jarl will live, though the lasting impact of his injuries are not known to say nothing of the trauma. How can we speak of resurrection in light of all of this? Lately, I've been feeling like we understand almost nothing of resurrection, or at least I do. I understand almost nothing about it. I don't really know what it is or how to recognize it. It seems to me this year, in light of all these events, that resurrection is wounded. Resurrection bears not just scars, but open wounds. Just ask Thomas. Resurrection has been through something. Those who've experienced it are changed, and the victory, if we are going to speak of one at all, is a humbler one. It speaks softly on the road of the suffering that has come before the prophets and the martyrs who have come and loved and died and risen again in their people. This is not a success story. It is maybe a failure that is generative. It walks the road alongside us with a broken heart, and we feel our own hearts burn in response. To me, it is not coincidental that Cleopas and his friend don't recognize Jesus until he breaks the bread, that symbol of his own body broken for those he loves. And then he disappears. They can't hold on to him. We don't get to know what God is up to or where God will pop up next, except that there will be tenderness there, even in the face of ongoing state violence. To the degree that we are the risen body of Christ, we, too, are wounded. We walk with a limp, or we roll or scoot. Our hearts burn within us when we think of the breaking, of the suffering that has come before, and we still keep moving, praying, organizing, telling the truth as we see it. We keep on making mistakes and taking accountability and holding the powers to account, too. And when we are discouraged, And maybe we are trying to slink away home. Someone meets us on the road and puts current events in context and teaches us about love and reminds us that success doesn't look like what Rome has taught us to expect. May we recognize that stranger when they show up beside us. May we recognize Jesus in everyone we meet. Amen.
For your call to action this week, I've got a couple places you can donate to support on-the-ground organizing for justice for Ralph Jarl, Jalen Walker, and others. You can also give to Surge, which has a chapter in Kansas City and is out doing the work of organizing white people to recognize Jesus in their neighbors who are not white. I'll put the links to those donation sites in the transcript. I also invite you to let your heart break. If you've been trying in any way to hold the news at a distance, set aside some time this week to let it in, to grieve, to acknowledge that it is not safe for a black boy to ring the wrong doorbell. There's something about heartbreak that I think can help us recognize the humble, wounded, scarred resurrection that will help us keep walking back toward Jerusalem, back into confrontation with the seats of power. Thank you for all you are already doing. Blessings on every effort. That's our episode for this week. We'd love your feedback. You can comment on our SoundCloud or Twitter or Facebook pages, or you can fill out the survey on our podcast page at surge.org. Give us a like, or rate us on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you check out our podcast. We especially appreciate feedback from folks of color and non-Christian folks. You can find out more about Surge at surge.org. That's also where you can sign up for Surge Faith updates and find transcripts of every episode, which include references, resources, and action links. Finally, we want to thank our sound editor for this week, Claire Hitchens. Thank you so much, Claire. That's it for now, friends. So many blessings to you for generative failure, connective heartbreak, and resurrection joy as we build up a new world. Until next time, I'm Nicola Torbett.